Before something terrible happens, how do you know your crisis communications and preparedness plan is actually going to work? Welcome to another episode of the Security Management Highlights podcast from ASIS International. Every month, we focus on the trends and topics the world needs to know about your world of keeping information and people safe. I am your new host, Brendan Howard, and today we take a look at crisis communications and crisis preparedness. What are hallmarks of a good plan to deal with things going very wrong where you work? And what are the first steps to testing that plan once you've got it in place? We'll talk to Mike Bailey, security control official at Collins Aerospace in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and Rob Curry with security consulting firm RCAS. And between those conversations, we'll have a chat with 2023 ASIS president Tim McCrate about volunteering. But first, crisis communication with Mike Bailey. Who's going to tell who what when something goes wrong, and how do you figure that out? To start off, Mike, hey, do people do enough thinking about crisis communications before the crisis happens? In my experience, nobody plans ahead enough. I would say that about the majority of organizations. You know, if if any organizations are out there like mine, we have so many things going on day to day. It's, It's hard to plan ahead for things that you don't know about. But that's why you have professionals that sit down and do that for you and say, well, what what if this happens and what if this happens? How do we deal with this? And a lot of organizations, from what I see, they throw that planning so far out or they put it off, you know, and they kick that can down the road. And it's something that absolutely has to be done almost on a constant basis. You asked me about kind of my big three um, for the article, the big three takeaways that I have. First one for this stage is plan, 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 and you still haven't planned enough. Um, (laughs) You need to plan out what you're doing. You need to think about who you are and and what you are as a company and how you're going to plan around what your capabilities are. I think a lot of companies may overestimate some of their capabilities when it comes to an emergency. So that's stuff that they need to think of ahead of time. One thing I've been, you know, here in the news lately, we've, we've seen this whole thing um, about the substations being attacked in North Carolina. Duke Energy did a great job with their crisis communications. Every day they had an update, hey, here's where we're at. You know, and you could tell that they had practiced this. This was something that they planned ahead. Their format was nailed down tight. Okay, so that's interesting. You ask people to also test their tech. Think about what technology they use and the platforms they're going to use to send information out to all the people. And I suspect planning is one thing. You get in a room and plan, but then actually running tests. Do you think it's even a smaller percentage of organizations that are actually running crisis tests? out in the communication so they know it's all working beforehand. Absolutely. I, you know, it's one thing to say, well, we're going to send, you know, we're going to send messages out to everybody via text message. Okay. Well, what if, what if your cell infrastructure goes down, then what's your backup? Always ask that what if, and it's, and it's not necessarily what if, but it's when, when this goes down, you know, if you're going to send out communications via text message, Are you going to send it out to everybody or are you going to target your audience? And what does that look like? You know, and and then nail down some of the messaging ahead of time for an incident. 
recently in my workplace, we had a situation occur where we needed to send out a message to the masses, so to speak, about, okay. you know, hey, this happened, and here's what we're doing. And it was a situation that we'd never really faced before. And so we realized afterwards, and that was one of the things that I thought about when I wrote this, is we had never faced this situation before. And so now we're sitting down and going, hey, we need some pre-programmed and pre-planned messaging that can go out quickly so that we're not gathering everybody together after the incident and saying, oh, what are we going to say? Let's hammer some stuff out and have it ready in the in the shoot, ready to go so that we can send it out quickly. Okay, that is perfect because I want to ask you about kind of during in the midst of it, that kind of... A crisis has happened. Everybody's gathered together. You say in the article, transparency is super important, and I can guarantee there are always contingents inside any discussion that either we don't know enough to tell people stuff, so let's just not admit we're ignorant, or something bad has happened, and are we sure we want to tell everybody exactly what happened? So trans, you say transparency. How does that play out actually when the security person maybe is there in the group or they're thinking about it? And there's pushback on how much do we tell? How do we tell it? Again, that goes back to your planning. You know, when when you have something, and it might not be a security incident. It could be an environmental incident. It could be some kind of work stoppage because of a, you know, a fire or whatever. But work out those scenarios ahead of time. Have buy-in from your key groups, security, human resources, legal. Legal's a big one legal is going to have to sign off on anything that you send out. So you want right. to engage them early and make sure that your messages are crafted so that they can just go out immediately. And then, like you said, you don't have a bunch of people standing around looking at each other saying, oh, well, what do we say? Can we say this? No, we probably shouldn't say that. <laughs> right. If it is a security incident and it, you know, it involved violence or anything like that, you want to make sure that your message isn't, isn't hamstringing, you know, the investigation don't release any investigative details or anything like that. So again, go back, plan those scenarios out. What if we had this situation and it's a security, you know, what if we had an active shooter? What if we had this? Go back and craft a message that you can get out quickly at various stages of the incident. Have those ready to go. Legal is signed off on them. Human resources approves. And and also you want to make sure that you're reviewing those on a regular basis. Um, I would say at least annually, you want to take a look at those, pull them out of the file cabinet, take a look at them and say, would this still apply today? Perfect, because it leads me to thinking about the after you talk about in there. um, Obviously, sometimes there are crises that happen and they're done quickly and you can communicate about them and everybody moves on. And then but you mentioned investigation. Sometimes if there's issues with this, this can drag out legally or or physically if there are problems with the plant now or this is an ongoing staffing problem, whatever the problem is. If a crisis happens, you get through it. This after effect, you mentioned people don't have time to plan. Do people really give enough time after the fact to reflect on how the crisis communication happened? Or are they just kind of like, it's done, we're rushed, let's move on? <laughs> I've seen a variation of both, honestly. Okay. Um, and you have to be aware of who you are and what you are as a company. You have to... Uh, you have to be aware of your own emotional tendencies when it comes to situations like this, and you control those by planning ahead. In the article, I talked about the derecho that hit our community in 2020. We're still seeing after effects of that. The actual incident took 
40, 50 minutes. But the after effects and the response and everything involving it still going on two years later and now two two years and three, four months later. So you have to be prepared in your planning to carry that message um, for as long as you need to, really. Do you see fatigue in organizations, companies? Have you seen where they handled it well, but the fact that whatever that, if a weather storm crumbs through and wrecks things and it takes months or years to fully recover and they have to keep communicating about this, if there was a mistake on somebody's part, they don't want to talk about it anymore. They're tired of it. They're feeling defensive. They're exhausted by this. They don't want to keep communicating and communicating. So then do you ever see that play out? Um, I do. You know, I think BP went through that. You know, with I would, I would expect, <laughs> and I brought that up in my article. You know, BP, I think went through that um, with with the oil spill uh, in the Gulf. They probably, as an organization, faced a lot of fatigue, and I think that the public itself got some of that feeling. It kind of washed over on them as well. About oh, you know, every time they turn on the TV, it's like oh, I got to hear about this oil spill again. But for the people that were impacted directly by it. They needed to know. They needed to know every day. They needed to know updates. They needed to know what's going on. So, you know, know your audience. Know who you're communicating to. There is going to be some of that fatigue, but you're going to have to work through it. What's that cliche? Better to over-communicate than under-communicate? That's Mike's take. Now, ASIS President Tim McCrate. Tim who is most recently Chief Security Officer for the city of Calgary, Alberta, in Canada, is going to talk a little bit of shop, but mostly a lot about the rewards of getting out of your day-to-day job a bit and doing a little volunteering. But don't worry, he's not going to ask you to over-volunteer, just, you know, volunteer the right amount. It's a given that, like many other professionals, people in security are extremely busy and they, they got their home life, they got their personal stuff, and then they got a ton of stuff they're doing at work. But you're going to make a pitch right now for an additional extra part to their busy workday, which is volunteering. So I want you to tell me what motivates you to want to tell security professionals right now, hey, I want people to get into volunteering. Oh, thanks for that. And and you're right. I've you know I'm going to be challenging our membership for my tenure as president to do three things. Right, answer three questions. Okay. So how can I help? How can I give back? And how can we as ASAS grow? And there's a reason why I'm doing that because I you know I grew up. My family start, were in the military. And my mom and dad were in the Royal Canadian Air Force. And when they both got out of the Air Force, and we ended up in Edmonton, Alberta, as, as cold as it was, we still found ways to give back. Right, and we learned early on as kids what that concept of service before self really was. And we watched my mom and dad, and, and they lived it every day. So I remember watching my mom cooking meals for other families in the neighborhood that were going through just a hell of a tough time, and they couldn't afford it, so my mom would help where she could. And my dad, I watched him fix almost anything with an engine right, for our neighborhood. <laughs> and, and, and he was amazing at it, right? but he never charged a dime because he wanted to give back because he knew that somewhere down the road, he may need help too. So... For him, we watched him spend hours helping, you know, people with their cars and their lawnmowers, et cetera. And he would help rebuild it and fix it for them just because they were neighbors in, in, in our community. And even as kids, even as little kids, we were, we volunteered at a community league. We, you know, my, my brother and I volunteered at a local hospital. And then we also, we, we you know, we, we volunteered at the schools that we were at. So for me, it's that the concept of service before self was something that I learned as a child. And it's now... Those lessons as a kid, I'm asking and challenging our membership the same thing. Like, how can you help? 
do you want people to imagine ways that nobody's thought of yet? Or are you hoping there will be initiatives that people can just join in and it will just be a matter of increasing the people involved in current initiatives? Good. I'm asking for both. I'm, I'm looking for okay. to see how creative <laughs> we are to help and, and to give back. And, and I'm looking at how many people want to become part of the formal processes we have and the channels we have within ASAS to volunteer. I mean, we have so many, right? We have Lots of different opportunities from our leadership perspectives and, and opportunities to contribute to security management, to contribute to communities. There's different ways that you can bring back your expertise, your knowledge, and, and bring your heart to this. And that's what I'm asking people to do is we have our, our established channels and, and places that we can volunteer. But what are some of the other ways that we can give back to the profession of security around the globe? That's where I'm really interested to see where some of the answers are going to come up. Is That's the challenge is what else can we do? to grow the profession of security. In the volunteering as kids at that time, you know, it's a, it's a good feeling. It's seeing mom and dad and then mom and dad are modeling for you. And that creates a sense of self and identity. As you got older, what were the other fruits that you noticed in your professional life as you spent time volunteering? Was it again, just that sense of self? Like you talk service before self and it's a close held value. Or you're like, I see some utilitarian reasons for this in my professional life. There's a lot of different aspects to when you do volunteer. And absolutely the, the feeling of helping somebody else out and, and knowing that you're helping yes. another person and, and another human being and being empathetic in that approach. Absolutely. What some of the benefits that I got out of volunteering as well is I met some amazing people and still meet amazing people in every opportunity that I get a chance to volunteer. You, you see them giving their heart and soul and, and you realize the commitment that they have to the different projects that they're working on. To me, it's been amazing to see the human element and to meet so many different people around the world. You know, I, I've been really fortunate in my career is that I've been able to give back uh, because of my career and I've been able to give back to the profession because of what I do for my career. So to be able to leverage both of those, meet some fantastic people along the way and see the benefits that you have given to an organization, a society, your neighborhood, your family, your friends, just by volunteering your time and helping out. I, I kind of wonder why you wouldn't want to do that. With the nonprofits and initiatives attached to ASIS or just floating in the in the security world, do they run into the same problem that I, I see this on the, on the micro level? There's the typical PTA and there's some dedicated parents and they burn out. And I see the same thing at churches and synagogues. I see the same thing at uh, food shelters and places that give away clothing. There are dedicated people who are there. And maybe they stick for many, many years, but a lot of times people get burned out. So is that a problem you've seen in the security world where there's some dedicated volunteers and they just too much is asked of them and they have to leave after a while? Yeah, you know, and I have seen that over the past, you know, 15 to 20 years. Uh, you know, I've been volunteering as a leader for, I lost count now, somebody had to remind me, it was over 20 some <laughs> years, right? So it's been a while. Um, what I found is, you're right, there are some folks who are just so committed to the profession and to giving back and to helping out that they do actually get burned out. Absolutely. Because we ask so much of them and because they've got such a big heart and they want to help and be part of a bigger, you know, a, a bigger and bigger thing. Absolutely. This is where, and I go back to the challenge to all of our members, can all of us step in and help out? Can all of us find time in our day, in our week, in our month to give back to the profession that's, you know, that we're helping to grow and, and, and to increase the visibility across the globe? Absolutely. What it does is it gives the chance for those folks who've been through some of the harder times and spending a lot of time volunteering. What if we gave them a little bit of breathing room and we picked up some of the slack? So I think that there's this great opportunity for all 34,000 of us to get involved in the profession of security and finding ways to give back. 
in the ways in the organization, have you seen this volunteering take very different forms depending on what country it's in, what region it's in, what kind of security the people are working on, or does it feel very much there's a unified sense of what volunteering looks like for ASIS? For me personally, I think there's a very unified approach to what we're doing within ASIS. And you'll see some specifics that happen within each one of the different regions. You know, I've had the 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 honor of being in some countries where I've, I've, I've gone to meetings and, and, and taught at different sessions and, and saw how they approach it. But I think the security community is different in some ways because we all have a similar perspective. We all see the value that we bring to our organizations and we understand how, you know, I'm going to step back. It, it's taken me forever to finally explain what the hell I do to my mom, right? I, I don't know how, and I don't know if anybody else is in the same boat, but for the longest time, I remember saying when I was in security in the, you know, I, I had to explain what I really did. And now right. people are starting to get it, right? They're starting to understand the value that we bring. And I think that's changed this, the perception that we have now as volunteer leaders within ASS is because there's this acceptance now of some of the work that we're doing. So now how do we leverage that? How do we keep moving right. forward with that? And that's why I think, Although there may be nuances in each one of the regions around the globe, the overall approach for volunteering within security, I I think it's pretty consistent around the world. So Tim hopes, yes, this year, security professionals will make a New Year's resolution to volunteer. We should all do that. Before Tim, we talked crisis communication. But what's going on under the hood of a crisis preparedness plan internally? Rob Curry, owner and founder of RCAS, a consultancy for corporate security, walks us through a bit how he lays the groundwork for crisis preparedness testing. He'll argue that a good test isn't about anticipating necessarily zombie outbreaks or World War III, but knowing who needs to be in the room solving the unique problems when whatever crisis happens. Rob's going to get into how you make decisions during a crisis. How do we shape the narrative when something really bad has happened? We have our own internal comms people, but we're not used to dealing with a factory fire where maybe an, uh, an employee was injured, a uh, product recall where there's a loss of confidence in the public from our product. How do we how do we message that? And that's usually when I put my hand and say, listen, I'm going to refer you to one of my partner companies, and they are specialists in crisis communications. There are some crisis communications companies that go the other way and will reach out to persons like myself and my peers and say, listen, operational process is not 100% our thing. We're, we shape the narrative. We help organizations prepare before on what to say, when to say it. But we need to help them through the nitty gritty of they're right in the middle of it. Roll up the sleeves. How do we make operational decisions? Okay, so I know it's it can be very complicated to talk about things in generalities about what does a crisis look like and what does a crisis preparedness plan look like? But I'm wondering if you are brought in beforehand, so this would be the ideal situation, an industry or a company or an organization is thinking ahead and they're saying, we need to be ready for crises we think could happen or what have we not even thought about? They build a plan and then you come in and they say, we want to test it. Could you tell me a little bit about what the timeline for testing looks like or what the kind of core components for testing a crisis preparedness plan in advance might look like or they should think about? A lot of mature organizations that were, de- and I say mature organizations, they're great at what they do day to day. So let's just start with the definition of crisis. If I build widgets, I need to produce 100 widgets a day to stay profitable. I can go down to 80 for a little while, but I need to stay around that 100 mark. If we produce 140, awesome, better for us. I lose my ability to um, 
my core components that build my widgets, I've lost that. I'm down to 40. That is a crisis. I am no longer in my normal operational state. Okay, so, and it's something okay. that could affect the viability of my manufacturing company long term. I might survive a month or two, but I need to get on top of this now or I will not be making widgets in the future. Organizations often, the mature ones, I've been building widgets for three generations. We're really good at that. We've come up with a crisis management plan and the size of the crisis management plan when I ask them if they have one is inversely proportional to the amount of time it will take me to prepare them. And you're like, well, Rob, isn't a bigger plan better? No. Typically, what I end up seeing is they've got this huge plan. It's got 900 chapters, everything from, uh, well, if we're down two widgets, we'll do this. Uh, a brown snake got into the factory and bit someone. Oh, no, but now it was a blue snake that bit somebody. That's chapter 7.6B. And I'm like, stop. Okay, so it's almost like people talk about the American Constitution being very hard to put amendments on. And what you're saying, the order the organization is. They've just added and added, all well-meaning. So it's very intricate. There's a desire to be paint by numbers because no one wants to be in crisis. It's not a fun state. I think they call it homeostasis. We all want to get to that steady state as human beings. So it's great if we have paint by numbers. The problem with that is it agitates against critical thinking. And snakes might not be your problem. And the problem is, is you're sitting there looking for, <laughs> you're sitting there looking through your you know, all of your chapters, where's my answer? And as soon as I start doing that, I stop having conversations of, Brendan, have you dealt with this before? Susan and legal, have you? Have we talked to our peers? We're not gathering information. We're looking for the answer on a cue card somewhere. The other thing I ask organizations, and I'll get to the essence of your question, I hope, when's the last time you pulled that plan out during crisis? Oh, Rob, it's too hard to use. Ah, we need something simpler. So, a huge proponent of, I first thing I'll do before we even start training or exercising and preparing is we'll have a look at the plan again. The plan needs to be simple, reliable, and repeatable. It needs to be crisis agnostic. I don't care if it's a brown snake or blue snake. It's I can no longer make widgets at a certain tolerance. I am now in crisis. I recognize there's different scenarios. Is it a labor shortage because... Uh, you're having a labor issue. The union has walked out on you uh, for two days. That's survivable. Is it two months? That's a different issue. Or is it a storm, a huge snowstorm like we're about to have here and where I live? We might be out for three right. weeks. But the thing that causes and triggers that event of us not being able to make widgets, that's more important. Who I need around the table is almost always the same for the initial meeting. And so we talk about process. Who sits around the table? Where do we meet? Who's in charge? That's often a big one. Who's accountable for crisis management? And a lot of folks say, well, that's the CEO. Mm, this is a major event that could kill the company. The CEO's in the war room with the sleeves rolled up. He's probably talking to the board and external. So there needs to be somebody <laughs> right. else operational that's down in the trenches in your war room making these decisions about do we close a factory? Do we open a factory? Do we find another supply chain so we can keep making widgets? So I get the plan nailed down first. So the first testing, it happens at the table. We are just looking at the plan and we're talking this through. Absolutely. A common error, 
and I've seen this in, in the consulting space. I'm going to come in, Brandon, I'm going to run an exercise and we're going to test your plan and that. And I'm the super smart crisis management uh, consultant. Okay, so the scenario starts. I've got you all sitting around a table and you can't make widgets. Yeah. A plane load of zombies just landed and they lit your factory on fire. Oh, and everyone has, uh, and you're like, that's not realistic. I'm not saying we shouldn't push the boundaries on what are realistic issues. If I'd said to you three years ago, there's going to be a worldwide pandemic, I, and, and myself included, I'm like, just a second, pump the brakes a little bit here. That's that's a bit drastic. The world's going to slow down. It did happen. We should have known. We've saw SARS before. So I'm I'm all for pushing the boundaries, but... When you start exercising and preparing a plan, the first thing you should do is run a simple tabletop, as you sort of alluded to it. Let's just sit around the table, take our new plan that's process-driven, and does this make sense? Ah, you know what? We forgot to invite Susan from legal. What were we thinking? Okay. And John from HR isn't here. We're talking about what we're, we're going to lay employees off or ask employees just to stay home for three days. And we did not include HR. That's kind of on a, again, these are a simple example. Do we have the right people around? Well, where will we meet? Well, Rob, we all work remote now. That's okay. We'll do it like this. That's, a, that's something new from COVID. Whereas before we had to have a room. And if you didn't have 15 right. screens up with CNN and the football game and that, that like we had these massive operation centers with all these screens going on. I'm like, What's on that screen? See, does it matter? And what's this? Like, let's get tight. So do we have the right place, the right people? And how are we making decisions? And that sounds simple. I sit with a lot of groups. They go, Rob, we all make decisions collaboratively. That is absolutely wonderful. So who's accountable for the decisions you're going to make? You have a team of seven people. Three of your people say go right. Three of your people say go left. Oh, geez, Rob, that would be, I'd be the tie vote. Is it a vote? Are you ultimately accountable? Who in your organization and where in the plan does it say, Brandon, Rob, Nancy, Jim, Sally, they're in charge of the crisis management for now? Again, that does not mean we can't be collaborative. It just means we've decided that Brandon for today is going to run the crisis. Brandon will take in, and hopefully he'll be collaborative when he has time and opportunity to get creative ideas. But at the end of the day, if it's a great decision... The team wins and we, we thrive through crisis. If not, Brandon can't turn around and say, oh, that's on the team. They gave me back. No, 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 no. You are accountable for that. And that's a big, that's one thing I test for is, is there somebody accountable? Because if not, you can't drive difficult decision. making. This isn't day-to-day widget making. We're in a crisis. The viability of our organizations is in danger. So people need to make decisions, own their decisions and move forward from them. You're simplifying. In other words, you're saying, we know what the plan is. We know who's responsible. We know we're going to make that. Where are we going to make this decision if there's a if there's an issue? We've got all that cleared up. I was hoping you were going to tell me, oh, no, no. We're just going to have an ultra-specific algorithm for every crisis. We're going to pull it out just like we do on the on the shop floor or something. We have processes for these things. We've been around a long time. You're telling me the first thing is we're going to have to make hard decisions at the hard moment. Then what does a test actually look like? When you set something up, do you ask them, give them a crazy thing and then say, how are we going to think this through? Is it a decision-making test then? Just on crisis, before we jump into that one, uh, folks say, well, Rob, why don't you have a checklist? I said, well, checklist and, and that's what I want. things are perfect. <laughs> or pre-trained, they're like, well, Rob, active shooter, that's a crisis. Yes, but your crisis management team's not meeting in a boardroom. There's someone on the campus of your with a weapon that could hurt someone. I would hope your security department or who's accountable for doing that training has run 
very specific live drills. Uh, I used to work for a large hotel chain and like we'll rob a fire in a hotel. That's devastating. Yes, that's one of our biggest issues. The crisis management team might meet to deal with the aftermath, but that initial response on floor three where the suite has caught fire, there's probably people I would hope that have very specific roles. Someone is calling the local fire department. It's a crisis, but you're not running your crisis management process. Those are emergency, what I call emergency gotcha. drills. Okay. One of the things I'll do is, is is training first, and I separate training from exercising. Training is, Rob, I, you know, we've talked for a few minutes here about crisis management and this process, and we're kind of hitting the wave tops, but I want to get into, like, what's the life cycle of a crisis? I start with that. How do we recognize we are in crisis? Walk them through the process from A to Z. It would be like you saying, Rob, here's an F1 car. I know you know how to drive. You told me you have a driver's side. That would be irresponsible to hand me the keys. Even though the track just goes round and round, I, I do, I'm not ready right. to take that on. And so you say, Rob, we're going to start with a go-kart. And I'm going to talk to you actually for an hour about driving theory at high speed. I go, oh, okay, that makes sense. I'll be more prepared when I jump in. So I always do very specific training. And it's about the crisis management. I almost always purposely never talk about your industry. Because as we're doing training and I talk about widgets, go, Rob, I've been building widgets in my family for three generations. You're not going to tell right. Brendan's family how to do that. I said, no, not time. I'm actually going to talk to you about crisis and somewhere <laughs> else. We go, oh, Rob, I know nothing about hotels. Perfect. You will now see there's no politics, no baggage, no history. And you're like, okay. And usually the light bulb comes on. They go, that process would work for my widgets. Perfect. Now we're ready to have a conversation about what would happen in your organization. The first time we step off, as I mentioned earlier, is a tabletop exercise. Let's just sit down with a clear objective of let's just test, does our plan make sense? Did we pick the right people? Can we gather in a relatively quick fashion? Do we know who we're briefing up the chain? Like who am I reporting to if I'm the crisis person? The teams that are at the table, are they able to make decisions? Are they at the high enough level they can make decisions like we're turning IT off or on or making big, heavy decisions? And do they have the support below them to actually be the doers? For example, you're going to shut down part of your IT infrastructure because of some kind of breach. I imagine it would be a very, we'd want to test, do we have someone that can make that decision at the table? And then that person's the one actually not typing the commands and they have a team below them that's probably not in the way. That's what we would test in that first tabletop exercise is do we have the right people? And we would stop there and you're like, well, Rob, why don't we get into a really meaty scenario? That's next. Correct. I mean, let's move it into the field. Here we go. We're going to, we're going to role play. We're going to have little, little badges or signs that go on everybody. Here's the victims. Here's the whatever. We read a book about karate and Bruce Lee for a few minutes. Let, let, let's fight. Someone's going to end up with a black eye. Because we've got some great theory, but let's move into this in a measured fashion. So after a tabletop, and, and you can stage your tabletop soon, you should, one, the plan looks like it works. We should start talking yeah. about some scenarios now and get into what some of my peers will call drills or a little more live. Again, we're not, we're still playing with Monopoly money, but we're coming in with scenarios that are a little richer now. And we're actually going to talk about how your three-generation family makes widgets, and we're going to come up with stuff from what I'll call your risk register. Rob, we're off. We deal with chemicals. We're really worried about chemical spills. We're really worried about fire. And where we are in the United States, we've had some real significant labor shortage. And those are probably three things that I could say, well, let's pick one and start to actually play a scenario out, a bit of a story to see how we would make decisions. 
Again, we've already had tabletops that have validated our plan is solid. We have the right people around the table who are empowered to make decisions and how we make decisions together. Now we're getting into testing our, our thought process and some creativity and actually managing true things that could impact your industry. Once you've moved through them, you've got set objectives and scope and you're, you feel like you're getting them. You're like, no, I think we're good here. There should be an assessment at the end of each one. How did we do? How do we get better? Because that's just what professionals do. And again, it's not about failing anybody. And I think that's one thing, uh, probably the biggest error I see. I often wonder aloud if it's driven by the consultancy business. Um, you failed. Only I can fix all of your problems, really. Even right. groups that uh, what I'll say, nail a scenario and get it right. We always come up and go, you know what? We could have been a bit faster. We were a bit slow. Okay, perfect. That's a, an after action point to take home. So we get better and more efficient. And anybody that practices a sport, the more you practice, the better you get. So there's usually a couple of these tabletops with known scenarios for your industry till you get into your sort of sweet spot. And then you're like, we're feeling pretty good. Then you should clearly take someone from the outside that comes up with what I'll call a live scenario and say, in March of next year, man, you're going to get a phone call and I'm going to throw a live scenario at you on the how much notice we give you. And I say, we're going to do a scenario testing on the 14th of March. And you go, okay, I'll get my teams ready. We're, I think we're ready. And we'll start to give you injects. But there's an, an external team that drives this scenario. And we're watching how you, one, get yourself ready for crisis, how you make your decisions again, how you communicate. Did you bring in the right internal and external stakeholders? Again, we're playing Monopoly money, but we're letting the game really play out now. And those are what I'd call a live exercise. And again, but there should be, again, clear objectives. Why are we doing it? And then this validation piece at the end. How did we do? And then what's the next one? I highly recommend at least two to three tabletops per year. Once an organization has got a good solid plan and they're feeling they're feeling really good about how they're managing credit. One of the questions I ask is, we first meet together, I said, Brandon, have you ever met Nancy? Well, I know she's in HR. I think I saw her at the barbecue last summer. <laughs> that tells me right away that you haven't come together as credit. That's okay, but you don't know how Nancy thinks. You don't know what her drivers are. You don't know what her level of experience. And the flip side, she doesn't know maybe how the crisis, it's clear the crisis management will not be as fluid. Whereas if you're like, of course I know Nancy, I know Steve and John, we're all together. And I know they're alternates. Nancy might be on holidays, and that's Murphy's Law. If it can go wrong, it will. And will you and your organization know who's going to talk and what are they going to say? And who needs to be in the room, who can sub in if they're missing, and solve the problems out of that crisis? If you haven't thought about crisis preparedness in depth lately, it's time to revisit. And that is it for the latest episode of Security Management Highlights. Thanks to our guests, Mike Bailey at Collins Aerospace, ASIS President Tim McCrate, and Rob Curry at RCAS. Find us at sm.asisonline.org. If you got excited about something here, share this with your friends inside and outside of security management. The world needs to know how vital and awesome this field is. And leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. We would appreciate it. And hey, be safe out there.